Welcome to the Macrofab Engineering Podcast. I'm your guest, Eli Hughes. And we're your hosts, Parker Dillman. And Stephen Craig. This is episode 227. Eli Hughes is the CTO of T Zero Research and Development. T Zero was founded in 2016 by three Penn State University graduates who have training and experience in embedded systems, acoustics, mechanical engineering, and software. Eli's technical background is in electronics, software, and acoustics. Eli currently also does work for NXP Semiconductors. Before T0, Eli worked at the Penn State Applied Research Lab where he worked on applications in sensors, condition-based ma maintenance, robotics, undersea vehicles, and space science. Eli also taught part-time at Penn State University EE department. In his spare time, he plays guitar and keyboard and enjoys woodworking. So thank you, Eli, for coming on to our podcast. Thank you. Glad to be here. Um, so tell us more about you, Eli. <laughs> okay. So <laughs> just, 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 let's just jump into just it. Just jump right into it. <laughs> um, yeah, where do I start? Um, it's like an origin story. Um, so yeah, I, I grew up in uh, northwestern Pennsylvania um, in a little town called Kane, Pennsylvania. Um, graduating class, I don't know, like 70 or 80 students, small town, Allegheny National Forest. Um, and uh, yeah, I was just kind of like a Pennsylvania farm boy. Um, and at one point, I believe it was a seventh grade, um, we had uh, got introduced to Apple II, Apple II E computers in our computer lab. Um, and I, at that point is where I kind of got hooked into programming, electronics, the whole, you know, the whole kind of circle. Because um, prior to that, my life was Nintendo, NES. Um, but once I kind of discovered the Apple IIe computers and we learned, you know, uh, how to program in basic, um, draw lines on the screen, that kind of thing, I kind of uh, made a connection. In, in a, and I kind of tell the story in, in the same way as I, uh, my best friend at the time, Adrian, our biggest thing in the world was Friday, I get on the bus, you know, we would ride back to his house thinking about playing like Mike Tyson's Punch-Out, uh, Metal Gear, you know, all the cool Nintendo games. And we would always, about a half an hour bus ride, we'd have the Nintendo Power Magazine, which was just the coolest thing in the world, um, you know, at the time. But kind of right in the middle of learning about this Apple IIe computer, um, the Nintendo Power, they kind of had like a spread on what's inside the, the NES. And it mentioned it had a, a 6502 microprocessor. And it was almost simultaneous to that. I was digging through the manuals, trying to figure out how to do something for a little game I was making. And it said inside the Apple II computer, E was the 6502. And it was like right then I said, you know what? If if this chip could be in this box and in this box and doing these two separate things, I can make this chip do anything. And that's where I got hooked. And the back of the manual, it's kind of like the back of the old video stores where only the adults were allowed to go, was the, um, the manual for the assembler that was built into the Apple II. And that's where I, I really got hooked on doing really neat stuff with 6502 assembly because it was the only way to get any kind of performance out. And so, um, so yeah, that, that was kind of, uh, you know, I was in middle school. I, I actually fell away from engineering and technology in high school because they didn't offer any other programs. And that's where I got into uh, keyboard and guitar. I like 
super into guitar almost to I, I was going to go to Berkeley School of Music. I, you know, really got into that. But eventually I, I circled back and went to, um, you know, a, a, a Penn College, Pennsylvania College of Technology. They had a four year degree in uh, electrical engineering technology. And I got hooked because when I went and visited, they were doing all the neat stuff with microprocessors and hooking computer boards that were on at the time on the ISA bus and an old PC, literally to breadboards to control robots. I mean, it was like, I, I, I kind of found my people, um, you know, and uh, so that's kind of a little bit about my background, um, went through Penn College. It, what drove a lot of my interest in programming, it was the video games I was really into you know, 3D was still really new. Um, I was really into the mathematics, all of that. But the other thing I was into, I played guitar and I really liked guitar effects. And and I think it was 1999-ish, maybe a little earlier, a company called Line 6 made a device called the Pod. The Red Bean. The Red Bean, the Kidney Bean. The first real digital amp modeler um, that sounded pretty good. And I wanted to know how that thing worked. I was not giving up until I knew everything about it. And the next year in college, we had our uh, introduction on digital signal processing. Um, and so I kind of started down this other path of getting really into DSP and algorithms. Um, and that's what I wanted to do as a career. And my, it, it was interesting that the first job I got was actually at a company doing power electronics. And I thought, you know what? This is just, I need, I need the money. You know, at the time my first daughter was born, I'm like, I got to grow up, I need a job, you know, that kind of thing. But but it turned out that all the stuff we were doing with power electronics and for piezoelectric ceramics, it was all tied together because I was, I ended up working on research projects at Penn State uh, with these high power piezo um, transducers used by the Navy. Um, I essentially had to build 100 kilowatt amplifiers that, in, you know, instead of a speaker is going to a big transducer. So it was all tied together. And um, through that, I actually found Penn State, which was about an hour away from me, um, had a, a degree conferring program for graduate programs, PhD and master's in the science of sound. And I got really interested because I was thinking about grad school for electrical engineering and computer science, but I was like, you know what, I'm, I'm kind of working a job, I'm doing all this stuff. I, I, I kind of wanted something new. And I, I always joke, the reason I went there is because they're the only place that let me in. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, the, the reality is, is that is, you know, their only entrance requirements, I mean, they're, they're, it was tough, but you had to have a, you know, your background in, in you know, math and physics and all that. but the pool of um, people who come in there is very diverse, like mechanical engineering, physics, electrical engineering. Um, so there's actually software people, uh, biology, speech, human hearing. So you, you end up with this pot of people coming from these different backgrounds, um, coming to study, and I, I just have to be part of it. Um, so I packed up, uh, you know, the family, we moved to State College. Um, I ended up going, you know, trying to figure out how, how how are we going to do grad school and have a family and, you know, get this master's degree? Uh, did that. Ended up with a job at the Applied Research Lab um, at Penn State, which it's a uh, uh, Department of Defense uh, university-affiliated research lab um, focusing on underwater acoustics. Um, so I kind of fell into this position that was just really awesome. I got the degree. State College was a great place to live with a university town. Um, 
And uh, so, yeah, so that's kind of where my life started. We, we, we mentioned uh, origin story, or I believe you mentioned origin story yeah. earlier. And, the, and, and as you were talking, the first thing that went through my head with that is, you know, in the Spider-Man movies when he's in like the research lab and the spider comes down from the, from the ceiling on the web and bites his hand. I kind of imagine a 6502 processor f- coming um, down from, from the <laughs> ceiling and poking you in the finger. <laughs> that, that probably isn't, I, I don't know what it is. I, it, I, I do describe it. It was somewhat of an epiphany. It's something changed about how my brain thought about everything because you know, kind of growing up in a rural area where we didn't have access to a lot of anything. I mean, we didn't have a computer at home. I mean, the fact that this device was no longer magical, that someone could, you could understand it, you could buy a book. Um, the other piece of the, you know, the, you know, the thing, the piece of the puzzle was, you know, I would go visit my mom, my mom and dad were separated and I'd go visit her in Pittsburgh, you know, a larger city in the summers. And you know, this was seventh grade, and I was young for seventh grade because, um, you know, uh, you know, I, I entered school, you know, kind of at a weird time, and so I was like a year or two younger than everyone else. But I remember my, I might have been ten or eleven, walking around. We went to this flea market. I was bored out of my gourd. Did, I, I hated everything, and we were walking through this old area with all these books. And lo and behold, in the middle, it was like shining, like the ray of light. It said, it said like six five zero two Zach Sydex. I went over there and I begged my mom. I was like, I don't care. I don't, whatever 50 cents, whatever we have, I want this book because it, it broke down like assembly language. And that was the key. That was like what, what I needed. And um, I would actually hand write out programs because, you know, that's that's all I could do. But yeah, so I got bit by the 6502, you know, <laughs> you, you found your Rosetta Stone. Yeah. So. <laughs> and I still have the. It's on the. It's on my shelf here at the office. I I, I still keep oh, it. The book is. Yeah, the book, the original book. Um, it's one of the few books because I I like a lot of ebooks. So, but it's one of the things I'll keep. I keep that in the uh, art of electronics. Um, that will be in physical copy because uh, I feel if you're on a deserted island and you have to choose one book, it's a hard choice. I'd probably go with art of electronics, but the programming six five zero two is probably in the same class, but. Um, it's just kind of special to me. Um, do, do you, uh, just out of curiosity, do you have the third ver- uh, edition of Art of Electronics? Uh, the new one, the gold one, yeah. So I have the silver one, the second, and I, I got the third. Because at Penn State, um, while I had to use the texts that were part of the curriculum and some of the courses I did, uh, that was – I couldn't require the book, but I, I – strenuously encouraged that everyone taking a circus course buy this book because all this crap will make a whole lot more sense when you have this other perspective <laughs> especially at like a, a traditional university type um you know methodology for teaching which wasn't always you know i i think a lot of students you know have a tough time because it's approached maybe not as easily as it could be um but that's why I like Art of Electronics. It's definitely a, a good reference to you know to have to, to to look at. So you mentioned quite a bit about um, getting involved in sound and audio and even doing guitar stuff. And for uh, any long-term listeners of our show, they're probably expecting that we're going to go down that route for this episode. But in in reality, we're probably actually not going to be touching on that as much, which no. is uh, which is probably surprising for some of our listeners. 
exactly. Um, because T zero has nothing to do with guitars. At least I'm pretty sure about that. Um, I hope to use the profit someday to 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 maybe change that, but. Uh, I, I, I do. I do have this active pit guard circuit hanging from the ceiling. I have stuff around here, but but no, the the actual the business is much different. But it is sound. It is tied to sound. So um, so so Eli, what is T zero? How did it start your involvement? Yeah. So so T zero um, was founded by you know uh, you know three kind of myself included uh, graduates from Penn State. We kind of came here for you know from different places, but. Probably circa 2012 or 13, um, I, I met uh, one of uh, my colleagues, business partner Stephen Wells. He was um, he was just starting uh, uh, graduate studies in acoustics, and he was working in the department at the lab that I was. Um, and we just started talking in the back. We were setting up a test, and we just started talking about, you know what? If we had a business, what would we do? And we had a lot of, you know, kind of pie in the sky ideas about culture and how we'd want the business and i mean it went from the the electric bike powered from the iphone to you know sensors that detect hydrogen to you know all over the place but um so steve worked uh with me at the lab um and he was super in the audio but he's a mechanical engineer completely different um background but he played in a band and you know did the same thing i did was he a drummer uh no he actually did keyboard Okay. <laughs> yeah, keyboard. Um, so, so anyway, but Steve, uh, like all like all students do, graduated. Um, he he eventually he got a job at Boeing doing structural acoustics on the um, SLS, the space shuttle replacement. So his job is to make sure the thing doesn't vibrate apart and figure out where everything needs to go. Um, so he's really big into uh, simulation with really expensive tools, looking at you know vibrational modes of this structure. And it's kind of cool because he had access to all this data from all the space shuttles, and that, that's what he did. Um, but so time marches forward. Um, so Steve is working at Boeing, uh, kind of becoming a rocket scientist. Um, it turned out his brother, Nick, went to mechanical engineering school as well. And um, he ended up actually just serendipity in the same department. Um, and we started talking. I say, hey, how's your brother? He says, you know, good. And we eventually got talking again. And Steve was thinking about coming back for his Ph.D. Uh, to Penn State, um, which he did. And then it kind of started up again. We went to Maker Faire. Uh, we built this little boom cube. We were doing little Bluetooth you know, amplifiers with DSP put in a suitcase. Um, we were doing kind of neat stuff like that, trying to figure out do we want to sell this. Um, and we kind of farted around with a bunch of different things. But what really happened, I um, in 2017, it started getting kind of serious where we were trying to really figure out, well, what, what could we be doing? Um, kind of putting all our powers combined, because we, we each came from different backgrounds, have much different skill sets. Um, we're engineers, we're not salespeople. Um, you know, we didn't have training in running a business, but we had a lot of ideas and a lot of passion. Um, and so we had two or three different ideas that we put together plans for and just went around pitching them. And so uh, we ended up somewhere in a nearby town at um, kind of like a, a meeting of people who like invest in local businesses and you kind of pitch to them. Well, we, we met a gentleman, Mark Barnhart, who owned, had a very successful business, um, you know, kind of in the printing industry. He prints, you know, IRS tax forms, does a lot of logistics, uh, SAT tests, but he sees data and information as a, as a thing. 
you know, he told us, you know, I really don't care for your business plans, but I really like the team. Um, <laughs> you guys, your engineers, you really need to work on this a bit. But so at that point, we started really talking, and that's where the mentorship came in of someone who really knew how to grow a business, interact with customers, uh, you know, get to the bottom of what people want. And so uh, in 2017, we kind of, so Steve had moved back, he was gonna work on his PhD, um, but Nick and I, we, we all kind of decided we needed to quit our jobs to, to really focus on this. Um, we had to quit kind of some really nice jobs with really nice people. It was, it, it was tough, but to really pursue this because it, it was at a point where, you know what, we have the right people, uh, we have some backing, we have the right mentors, let's give it a shot. Um, and so, you know, so we did. It was like uh, 2017, I think September 30th or whatever, whatever that Friday was, we checked out of Penn State. Uh, Monday morning, we showed up in the basement of Nick's house and we sat and looked around and like, all right, what, what now? <laughs> we, we, we actually have to make something now. What's step two, right? Step, yeah. two. step one, quit job. Step two, what, 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 what? Step, step three, profit. Yeah, so exactly. Uh, well, because, it's, you know, we, we had been working on things and we had engaged some different using acoustics in a lot of different um, application areas. But, you know, like like anything, what you what's interesting to you as an engineer and what you can you know make isn't necessarily what can sell or is what's profitable. So it, it's trying to trying to match all these things together. Um, but the, the one thing about Mark is Mark, um, who is our kind of partner and friend, in, in mentor, you know, he had a lot of other contacts who built businesses and someone came to us and said, Hey, we've got this, you, you guys are kind of experts at sound and fluids. Have you ever heard of this thing called specific gravity? Um, and could you measure it? And so, you know, we looked at each other. I'm like, I can measure anything like, uh, with enough time, <laughs> money and everything. So, um, and, and that's where the, the, the whole brewing, um, kind of, uh, application started was that we were approached with, hey, you know, we, we think if brewers had something to monitor fermentation um, to kind of know when the, when, when the brew starts, stops, and is done, that can be valuable, especially to breweries that, I mean, they're trying to run a tap room, they're trying to do canning, uh, they have a lot of fermenters. Um, what they're actually trying to schedule something? They're, 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 they have hundreds of thousands in tanks and plumbing and that's in, that's an asset like you know capital that they're trying to make they want, they need to make money with, and when someone maybe once a day has time to pull beer from the tank to take a gravity reading, could you help with that? Um, and so we said, you know what, being from a science background, yeah, we'll we'll we'll, we'll give it a shot. We said yes, right? Like, like you say yes, um, just because you know Steve and I being acousticians, you know it's. You know, when, when you take a fluids course, you get the wave equation drilled into your head in the thermodynamic models of, you know, how fluids work and density is like one of the one of the two big terms, right, in, in sound speed. So um, we looked at a, bu a bunch of different options and we kind of came up with this, a couple of different designs, um, but eventually came up with this thing, kind of looks, I, I sent you some pictures of it. Um, it's, it's kind of like a long, long six to seven inch cylindrical tube with a reflector at the end. It's designed to fit right in a tri-clamp port. So the idea is there's no, there's no retrofit. You just kind of pop it in. 
um, with a cable coming out. And so, for people that don't know, what kind of port is that? So, a trolley clamp port. Um, I, I I explain it as kind of like in in your house. Like if you're to do plumbing on your, you know, say your sink, you could look at it and it's like either an inch and a quarter, an inch and a half. You go over to Lowe's and there's a million things that fit that. You, you can put it together. Well, these big industrial tanks have a port called a tri-clamp. Um, and it's, you know, it's a fitting at different diameters. Inch and a half is, is a pretty popular fitting that you can insert things into this port and it clamps together with compression in this little O-ring. Um, and they make everything. It's kind of like the USB port of tanks, right? <laughs> you can buy analog temperature gauges, um, you know, the racking arms, you have sample ports, uh, pressure transit, everything can go on a tri-clamp. So that was kind of our first um, big constraint. We said, you know, if we come up with something, this, gotta, this can't be something additional that the brewers have to think about cleaning and dealing with. It's got to plug into an existing port. Well, and I, I think that's one of the big words there that's special about tri-clamp is the fact that it's so easy to clean and it's meant to be very sanitary. Yeah. Well, it's, 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 it's two flat surfaces with a gasket. Yes. It's, and it's literally, I, I think the first time I, I, I did, it took me a little bit to get the hang of it, but someone who's good at it could put those things together, like, you know, five, 10 seconds, you're, you're latched on. Well, and, and if you watch some of these guys who are, are good at them, they do it one handed. They yeah. slap, they slap that tri clamp on it, swings around and then they spin it up and it's good to go. So, so yeah, so we, we, we looked at it and um, spoke to a lot of breweries, you know, of different sizes because little breweries have different problems than big breweries. Uh, the bigger the brewer, the more money they have. And they'll invest in really expensive equipment um, um, or, or do better, be able to like hire an automation company. You know, there's big brewers you talk to. They can afford a quarter million dollars to give to Rockwell Automation to come and install some Allen Bradley PLCs. Like, uh, but that's not most. That's like that's that that's on one end. Then on the other end, you might have a startup brewery that, you know, maybe has a, a few ten barrel fermenters or um, or even smaller that their mom is running the the yeah exactly. pub side yeah. <laughs> so so we had to kind of take a look to try to figure out well, you know, if we can build this thing or build something that that you know, will, will be form factor compliant, like what, in, in what form would it be, you know, like useful? Um, and, you know, so that, that's kind of where we went down this path. We, we spent a long time just exploring that um, because we came from a background of building scientific instruments where the goal was to build the best possible thing you possibly can. Uh, form factor and all the other things well, not unimportant. I mean, that wasn't the first thing you went after. We're trying to do research because we want to make sure the spaceship makes it right, you know, yeah. out of space or the, or the submarine doesn't sink. And you're building <laughs> one of them. You know, or at most maybe eight because we messed up the first seven. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. Uh, the test destroyed the test equipment. Oh, yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> And it was exploring kind of like this product, you know, market match um, and uh, kind of having fun at it. And I, and I got to say, um, you know, like like anything there, you know, there's stressful days. There's days is difficult. You're writing code. You're having a hard time. But to be honest, being able to interact with brewers is just the best thing ever, because, I mean, these are people that are just 
awesome to talk to. They're, you know, you literally go on the job to have a beer with a guy to just to understand his problem. I don't have to dress up. There's like, in fact, like if I don't look like them when I go in there, like I immediately lost 20 points. So like, um, <laughs> I, I, I couldn't ask for like a better situation, um, you know, to, you know, to talk to these guys. And, you know, I, I describe it when, when we were, when I was first meeting a lot of these, these professional brewers, they're kind of like this cross between like a biologist, um, some chemical engineering, mechanical engineering and a plumber like <laughs> it's like all these things put together and so you you end up with meeting some really interesting people who are you know wicked smart at what they do and it's just really fun to kind of learn from their experiences you know okay so i think it's a i, I think it's a, a good idea to take one quick step back and just kind of recap everything right now so t0 creates tools or I guess maybe potentially one tool that brewers can use to monitor beer fermentation is sort of like the last 25 minutes overview. <laughs> yeah. Just kind of like the, um, no, it, it, exactly. So what, what the product ended up being was more than just a sensor, but we're trying to deliver a solution, um, to get the weekends back or to be able to, to know what's going on that tank without you being there or paying someone to take samples. Um, you know, all the time because it, it was such a big just meeting brewers, learning that you know Chris, you know, who is at our local brewery here, was part of our pilot. I mean, he might have to drive forty-five minutes on a Saturday. He would pitch east on a Friday. He would just drive in to see what's going on, and I mean, that's time away from the fishing boat or your you know you know kids' baseball game. And um, so we're trying to build tools to enable you know enable these guys to get the data they need. Um, Right, right. So, so traditionally, when it comes to that monitoring process, it was, uh, you know, take a sample. In other words, pull off some of the liquid, and then do some kind of mechanical process, like floating something in the liquid, or or some other method of getting it. What does your product do uh, to uh, solve that solution? Yeah, um, yeah, that's a good question. So, um, kind of the. The, the existing tech is like a hydrometer. You float a hydrometer and it, you know, um, you, you kind of like read little graticules with your eyeball to see where it's at to get the relative density. Um, we, we take a completely different approach. So our sensor um, is this, you know, six inch long stainless steel apparatus that touches the fluid. That's all it sees is stainless steel. And we emit sound waves um, that will travel through a little one inch section of the fluid, hit a reflector and then come back. And the idea is that when you look at, um, you know, in, in acoustics, you study the thermodynamic equation of state and you use that to derive, you know, the wave equation of how sounds travel through a fluid. Well, you end up with, um, at the end of the day, with an equation that tells you, you know, the, the speed of sound is kind of related to three things, the temperature of the fluid, um, you know, think of like something called the bulk modulus, which think of it as like the springiness of the fluid um, over the density of the fluid. Now, there, there's a lot in each one of those terms, but um, there, there, there's kind of three three parts. Um, so if you can kind of get a grapple on two of them, you can get the third. And so since specific gravity is what is used by brewers to kind of, you know, keep their thumb on what's going on, if we can get a density 
uh, we can get specific gravity or a relative density. Um, and so we use that sound wave and measure basically how long does it take to go through a two-inch column of that fluid continuously. So we keep bouncing it back and forth. Um, so that's the underlying principle of operation of the sensor. Once you have that data, you apply a ton of math and you end up with a curve. Um, and that's the, that's the magic curve that would replace, you know, taking a reading, you know, once a day or, you know, for us, we can do it like say once a minute. Um, so, so you have to characterize the hell out of your sensors, right? Um, yeah. So what's really important and is we have to have uh, pre precision temperature. Um, uh, so we, we have a temperature sensor that is calibrated with probably the world's most fanciest, you know, this flute calibration bath that we had to get, has this big long certificate and we spent a bunch of money um, so we could accurately get the temperature and, and really cal over the ranges uh, we wanted to. You need that. Um, and you effectively need a way of measuring time to, a, you know, a very precise value. So. So speed of sound in say like water at like around 1492 meters per second. Um, the actual time of flight, like say in our sensor path, I'll put a number out there like is 45 microseconds. That by itself isn't that hard to measure a 45 microsecond delay. What we're after is not that delay, but the changes from one measurement to the next as, as things move. So to look at the the change in sound speed we need to look at um we need to get down into the nanosecond region of of changes to to pull out the 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 changes in sound speed um and so a lot of the engineering was getting the circuit that could do that you know you know reliably repeatedly over and over again um and get us a good number so we knew how fast that wave was traveling through the fluid um, and so that's kind of like the underlying oper you know, operation. Um, now, there is one other interesting thing I'll mention that you kind of get for free uh, with this method versus, like, say, floating hydrometer is that, you know, beer is like the wart is not a static kind of thing. It has, you put living organisms in it and they eat things, right? And it creates this, uh, you know, I like to think it was like weather in the tank, right? You, you know, the yeast consume the sugars, um, carbon dioxide and alcohol are byproducts. So you've got bubbles, which there are people at Penn State, I know them who have done PhD, you know, dissertations on sound waves and bubbly media for sonar to analyze, you know, to make sonar systems better. Um, and so initially it's, it's a challenge because you essentially have all this noise in the fluid as the yeast get active. But if you kind of understand the physics of the bubbles, you can sub effectively subtract that out and use that as an indicator of how active the yeast are. So with some signal processing, we can get another number in addition to the temperature and the sound speed that's directly, it's almost like an RPM gauge that we know how, exactly how active the yeast are during the ferment. So you have like an acceleration, a second order yeah, and um, it's actually, it turns out to be related to the, the derivative of the gravity curve that we get another measurement, but we, we pull out in a completely different way 
Um, and when you look at this thing, it kind of looks like a, it, it looks like the derivative of an arctangent function. It looks like a kind of like a bell curve, where it starts out at zero, kind of comes up, then kind of comes back down. And that's one of the things we give in our dashboard. You can just, without even looking at anything else, you could look at that thing and say, hey, I pitched a day ago. I should be at this level. It's either is it or isn't, and should I make an adjustment? And then you can just look at that curve and know when you're done um, and kind of know when to trigger other operations in your, in your process. So that's, that's really crazy that, that a brewer can have – on like on their phone, the ability to look at this and say, this living organism is on a feeding frenzy right now and they will be for the next three days and then it'll oh, start yeah. to taper off and I can plot that, you know? Oh yeah, it's in probably what was, I don't know, it was really exciting for us because when we were first, because you can imagine, okay, you got to build this precision instrument, right? We've got to build some, we've got to get in the hands of some brewers that'll let us, like use their tanks and be part of, you know, some engineering testing. We also got to get the data out of the brewer. We got to be doing data analysis. But I remember it was um, in 2018, it was the 4th of July weekend, you know, or the 4th of July holiday, you know, local brewer we were working with, um, he likes to, uh, he, he had a brewer that he, he was uh, fermenting really hot. And um, we didn't know he was going to ferment it hot, but july 3rd you know he pitched yeast we were like watching it because it was like one of our first real things we could watch it was like mission control at nasa we could watch the whole thing and it was july the 4th towards the end of the day like we were looking at we gave chris a call we said chris your brew is done he's like there is no way i just pitched. i said i bet you i bet you 50 dollars and a dozen chicken wings you're going to go in, you're going to be at a terminal gravity and it's done because you were brewing, you know, four, four or five degrees hot with some weird yeast he was using. And lo and behold, he actually went in and we were right. And we were like, it was kind of like vindication uh, that, you know, this, this kind of date, just that data of knowing that how active your yeast were, because you can make a decision because you could have the other problem. You could pitch and nothing happens and you need, maybe it's your fourth or fifth or sixth, you know, time reusing the yeast and they're just not very active and you need to bump the temperature or, you know, pitch new yeast. So um, all of that was super exciting um, from the data science side and just seeing kind of the system work all at the same time. So uh, speaking about the system, let's let's go ahead and just kind of talk about the the system as a whole, like what is all encompassed in this? So there's obviously sensors, but what more goes into it? Yeah, so we started off with the sensor, right? So we, we built this thing, um, and we we put some fairly serious uh, processing horsepower in it. Um, with what I was going to do is try to get all the intelligence I could in that sensor, um, and get all these fancy algorithms, um, which I can talk about a little bit later. Um, but uh, and and, that, and that's what we did, and then we had to build some way that to get the data out. Well. One of the things as engineers, you think everyone knows how to do the things you do. So for me, if I got a sensor with an RS-45 interface, I'm like, hell yeah, I'll just hook that up, get this uh, data acquisition, so do whatever, I'll hook it up. Well, okay, that's not most people. And especially not most people who are really busy. Um, so just coming with a sensor, while there were people uh, who 
would appreciate that and know what to do with it. That wasn't the majority of customers we were engaged with, right? They're they're super busy. They're trying to run a tap room. They're trying to put things in kegs. They're they need a solution. So that's when we sat around trying to think about well, what what else could we do to take it to the next level? So so that's where kind of like and and, and I don't like to use like the whole IoT you know, kind of acronym a lot, but that's where the, the IoT part of it, how do we get the data out? How do we get it to a system that they can log in and see it and see their, their data without being experts in any of this? Um, and being annoyed by it. And being annoyed by it. So we, we went through um, several iterations and with this, not only this project, but we had other projects we were looking at the same kind of thing. And we kind of ran into the same problem was that we kind of had two different customer profiles and we originally think, okay, we'll build this little box, kind of hook it up to their Wi-Fi, get data out, push data up, um, secure it. Well, the, the, here's the reality of walking into a lot of these environments. You either walk into an environment where the internet connection is some old Linksys router to which the password is still potato one, two, three, um, that you have <laughs> no idea. Uh, there's no security. And it's not even up. You're trying to use this to deliver your service, right? How, how do you do that? So that's one side of it. Then you walk into and they said, hey, can we we need the hook in. They're like, what are you talking about? There is no way we're letting this device. We're going to do an analysis of everything you're doing. You need to do all this stuff for us. We're going to do a full security. You know, we're, we're going to go through this process and you end you up, go through a security audit. Yeah. So you end up months later still not having deployed hardware because you're trying to convince someone that, hey, um, I'm not going to do anything bad on your network. And if you think about trying to deploy this, it's it's frustrating because um, you want to just get, get the data out. So we ended up um, kind of going a third way is that is going a cellular route. Because what it allows us to do is drop off a piece of hardware with no configuration. I mean, literally, it's already set up you can plug your sensors into this thing and it's transmitting data um, in, to the cloud. And cellular, is a, especially with some of the new, um, you know, you know, the newer protocols such as like NB-IoT, CAT-M1, which are designed for like low power, you know, low data rate sensor, the cost is, you know, is, is much smaller. It's really easy to deploy. Um, and it's actually easier to secure because you can work out um, deals with AT&T. Well, they can establish a VPN between those cell modems and your infrastructure, and it doesn't even touch the public internet. Like you can literally get to that level. So you have a lot more control. Um, and, and really what it came down to was if we're trying to deploy this, you add up what is the cost of two or three hours of a network security engineer's time and how much cellular data does that buy? And it's not even close. Like when you're when you're working it out that, so when we looked at this model, we said, well, we want to get this thing so we can ship them hardware. They don't have to configure anything. What would it be? Um, and we, we kind of landed on the cellular and it's worked out really well precisely for that reason, because it, it kind of bounds your problem, um, you know, in, in kind of a nice way. Um, so that's the middle part. Back to your question. So we've got to get the data out. Um, so then the last part is, well, it has to go somewhere. Um, so we, we, we have infrastructure we run, um, you know, kind of in the cloud um, that ingests all the data. We actually do uh, 
probably now 95% of the signal processing in the cloud um, to do all these measurements, uh, to kind of derive all this data, um, kind of throw that into a system that a web application then can, you know, a brewer at, you know, uh, Jimmy's Brewery logs in, he has eight tanks on his account, they're associated with these cellular devices and these sensors, um, it, we can give them that digital dashboard. Um, so T0 Brew is kind of like the sum total of all that. So we can kind of put it all in a box, you get this kit, you plug it in, and then on day one, you're, you're, you're good to go. You're, you're good to go. And it's, it's, it's aimed at trying to minimize that hassle on, on, on all sides, um, for the brewer and for, you know, for, for the people providing the equipment. Well, and, and you kind of avoided the route of just giving, um, CSV lists of data, right? You, you actually have graphical, uh, you know, dashboards that show these things and, and make it a little bit more simple. Yeah, so that's kind of the other side of it too. And, you know, if I put on my data science hat, I love plots. I love looking at every little nook and cranny. What, what the interesting from the value proposition is that what we found is that people really like to look at something that looks like a tank on the screen with some basic information. So you could put it up on a TV, see it, and then drill down into it, a curve to say, hey, it looks like this thing's ripping and roaring, it'll be done in a day. So trying to get that balance of, you know, this cool looking dashboard that, that looks cool, but being able to get the data as well as if you really, really want it, export, you know, like a CSV file so they could dig into like, say one minute time interval data to, if there's something they wanted to pull out. Um, so yeah, so that's, that's kind of the other, you know, the, the, the other side of it. So I'm looking at the pictures that you sent us. Um, what, what's been the process of the hardware design for the sensor? Um, I'm seeing a couple different iterations of the boards. Yeah. So, um, at some point I want to get like a get glass display case so we can have it. I, I was thinking about writing a blog, um, just to it, it, not necessarily from the T zero brew perspective, but on the hardware design perspective of from idea to product, like here is what you're expected to go through and what you're seeing there is the really nice end of it. So like anything, it started with, all right, we're sitting in the basement. All right. It's dark. It's kind of damp. We got some computers. We're like, all right, how are we going to solve this problem? Um, and so, so, so Nick, uh, you know, one of our you know, founders, mechanical engineer, he started thinking about the tri-clamp. Uh, Steve, who's the, really the acoustician, um, data science, started thinking about that. I started thinking about the electronics. So we each kind of started on each of our own domains. Um, and so for me, it was, okay, I know I have to measure this thing. Here's how precise. I'm very familiar with piezoelectric ceramics, all the analog front ends. Here's the piece I need. So the first thing out of the gate is I had some dev boards for an NXP processor that I was using on something else. I'm like, I'm gonna make like a little shield add-on to start bringing this stuff together. So I'd already had a dev board for some analog front end ICs. Like it was, when I say ugly, like it was not pretty. Um, you know, this is what I wanna put in my glass display case. So we took all that, what did an iteration on these dev boards, got it just to do something, right? Report sound speed. And early on, we, we measure our kind of how quiet our front end by looking at a statistic on our timing measurement. So if we look at the, um, the standard deviation uh, over a group of pulses, 
is that when we started this, the standard deviations were around 10 nanoseconds, um, you know, for a measurement of on the order of 45 to 65 microseconds. By the time it was the last version, we have it down to, for a good probe, 50 picoseconds. And so it was just starting from dev boards, how you would think you would do it, cut some circuit boards. We literally, um, just to save money, like, well, we thought we were saving money. Uh, we should have been coming to Macrofab. Um, uh, we got a little skillet. We were doing SMT and a skillet with some capped on stencils. Nick made the first 10. Um, I have no idea how we even got them to work that way. It was it was rough going, because um, because we came from you know we came from a background where the budgets are pretty fat to use, you know military grade contract manufacturers where, you know to we're trying just to to prototype ideas quickly, um, so we made use of you know low cost circuit boards, um, so we probably went through several iterations, but at some point, three or four in after the dev boards, we started packaging it in that sensor. Um, and that's where it started to get a lot, you know, a lot more real. So in the pictures I sent you, the longer version. So there's one picture I have. It has like George Costanza. Um, that's I, the one that's going on our blog, by the way. Yeah. So, so, <laughs> so, so the, the longer the two boards, that was the form factor that we had established for, you know, we, we had several versions with. But we, we, event, we had to go through like one more iteration. It turned out all the junk we had the stuff down in there, the cabling and make sure there's proper strain relief. Um, you know, Nick said, if there's anything you can do to get me some more space just for stuff, because we have to seal this thing up. Um, you know, and that's what that iteration was. We added some, you can see at one side, there's actually edge card fingers. That's actually for like an, like a test, uh, a little test board that we put it in that I bring all the signals out so I can, I can look at things. Um, I see a nice, uh, tag connect, uh, programming header on there too. Yeah. yeah. So, um, you know, tag connect, I usually start right from the beginning as it gets closer to production, something like that board, like that's all you can fit. Like there's, um, and we can actually program it through the, the you know, the edge card. Um, and so I just kind of made a funny Twitter post because uh, um, I was showing it to my wife who had never actually watched Seinfeld before and I still tease her about it. I'm like, you're missing all these cultural, you know, these great cultural references. Um, and, and so, you know, that, that was kind of fun. Uh, and of course, like the, the picture, like I always like to put fun little graphics. So I had the bubbly tank. Um, that looks actually really good. Yeah, it looks fantastic. <laughs> um, I'm surprised it turned out. Um, there was a, another picture of another our, our cellular gateway that they actually, the silkscreen registration was a few mils um, off in both X and Y. And it actually turned out in the camera, the effect was awesome. It looked, it had this like 3D kind of look to it. But um, yeah, so we like to have some fun, you know, fun with like the circuit board artwork and whatnot. So yeah, we'll definitely have to share this on our on our blog and and Twitter so listeners can look at them. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, so, so the hardware for, from the engineering perspective, I'm kind of lucky that that part, you know, was probably the easiest part of of the whole system because you know building you know you know microcontroller, getting the power supplies, the analog front end, you know something they're used to. Really, probably the most challenging aspect is. The actual, the system that really matters, um, that's the hard to build, is actually the acoustic front end. 
stuffed way down in that tube is a piezo ceramic um, that's kind of designed for, um, we engineer for kind of certain frequencies to interact with a bubble just right. Um, it has to be epoxied with some special epoxies and go through a process to make sure it's kind of mated to the inside of that stainless steel. Um, just that process, uh, Nick, who's a mechanical engineer, other co-founder, that's kind of what he championed. And um, not only that, is he had to figure out this tube, right? It, you know, it's kind of machined from one piece of 304 stainless of, you know, we, we wanted it so when, you know, Brewer holds onto this thing, it looks like, you know, a nice piece of industrial equipment. The only thing that touches that fluid is that stainless. Uh, but at the same time, we can't cost, have the thing cost $400 just for the... the I was about to say, equipment. like a chunk that big is kind of pricey. Um, yeah, we... Boy, and, and this was all Nick work, Nick's work of... We ended up... The good thing about this whole project is everywhere we go saying, hey, we're making this cool fermentation center for the sensor for the beer industry. Are you in? And like everyone says yes. So so the we, we found we have a shop in town. The guys looked at us. Oh, yeah, we can probably do this. And... Um, you know, went through a few. The first versions, you know, Nick made in his garage by welding some pieces and using a lathe and doing sanitary welding. But we, we eventually got to this one piece assembly with the, you know, the tubes hollow and, um, uh, and it worked. And he kind of figured that out. But pretty much the sensor as they come off the line, everything about how well it performs is that assembly up front. Um, the electronics part of it. The good news is like once you figure that out, like having a CM kind of stamp that out as, as long as I do my job of marking which way diodes are, you know, facing and actually give someone a bomb that's right. Like, um, you know, you know, that's kind of the easy part. <laughs> then then you, you should have 100, 100% yield, right? Oh, yeah. It's like, well, you know, the other thing too, just going, you know, in, in my career of building electronics, like you, you kind of go into every project with these like, huge ambitions of dominating the world on your first iteration and how everything's going to be awesome. And the, the, you know, the reality is, is like, um, figure out how to figure out what your mistakes are quickly and keep iterating. Like you're going to make mistakes. It doesn't need to be perfect. Um, iterate, um, just because the services to do this, to do electronics today are cheap, so inexpensive. I know compared to when I started, the fact that I could get a raw circuit board or even come to like a macro fab um, in my basement, in my shorts, put a throw up an order and I get something in a few weeks um, for a reasonable price is, is pretty amazing. So, you know, I, I think the days of, you know, puzzling over something for months to make sure it's just right. There, there's certainly industries that, you know, you, you certainly do that. But, um you know, I, I fully expect that anything we do, you kind of do three versions of, um, you know, one to build it, you know, the second one to kind of fix your mistakes. And then, boy, you run into production challenges where you have to deal with, you know, something changed. Your, some of your enclosure changed, a part changed, and some sort of DFM. So, um, so yeah. Totally makes sense. Um... I've, I've certainly fallen into that category also where it's like, oh, this first one, I've thought of it all. It's like, everything's going to work. We're all good. And then yeah. four revisions down the line, it's like, oh, my God, when is this thing going to work? Yeah, and sometimes it's all about, you know, set. I think in, in myself, I'll, I'll, I'll say I'm guilty of this as much as anyone else, is learning how to set boundaries at which you will not cross. 
Meaning I, I feel engineers work really good when you set, here's the box you will work in. Now engineer the hell out of this. And you end up, your brain turns on, you know, different side of your brain fires when you're kind of boxed in a little bit. Um, so, I, you know, it's just when the world's at your fingertips, when you have literally the selection of any microprocessor that costs next to nothing, you have all these services, when you have no box, you know, the, the best thing you can do is first draw the box you're going to work from, explore that, then, then maybe change some parameters. And I, I feel that it applies to the software world as well, because it has even more degrees of freedom, um, you know, when you think about how to architect software. Yeah. Yeah, how much code can you fit on a two terabyte hard drive nowadays? Oh God, too much. <laughs> well, I, I kind of go the other way, and no, and this is actually um, where we kind of ended up with the probe. Is I, I stuffed a pretty powerful microcontroller that could do all the algorithms in real time. Um, unfortunately, this problem is not as simple as taking a measurement and applying like a, a multiplier and an add to get a result, um, because measurement of density and fermentation, it's fundamentally like a stateful process, meaning you start at some state, right? There's some, some extract in the wort, you have some balance of sugar and water at temperature, you now add something new and this system evolves over time. So there, there is currently no way that I know of that you can have an electronic measurement directly measure density and output a proportional voltage. You know, such a thing doesn't exist. So what you have to do is measure these other things, know the initial state, and then kind of build a model of how it will, you know, how the yeast will perform. Um, but from the software world, we, we originally started putting all the algorithms in the probe, um, which was certainly more than capable of handling, but there was kind of like a practical measure of, you know, we would do you know, release a firmware, you know, we'd get it in the probe, send it over to the brewery, it actually had a bootloader in the probe, we could load code, um, but then you run into the problem as you're going through iterations and you want to tweak things even on the fly is the, we want to put the brewer in control. I'm just not going to remotely update firmware in the middle of a job. Like that's a very bad thing to do. And so when can I, and should I expect that the brewer will upload firmware? It's like, no, it's like they got other things to do. That's why we, we moved to a, a model of that's where the cellular really a dividend paid off where we take a bunch of measurements, I do some signal processing on this large data set to reduce the features down. We get that to the cloud, their computational computing power is nearly infinite. Um, and what's nice is I could have one brewery running on one version of algorithm, but say another brewery who's willing to test, I could be literally tweaking that algorithm on the fly without having to like remotely update firmware and device because I can I can do it, you know, in, in our infrastructure and um, in it. It was so much easier to think about deployment of, you know, many devices, especially when you don't want to interrupt, you know, a process where you could have a discussion saying, hey, can we try this? Are you willing to, you know, try the new algorithm or not? I mean, and just getting non-computer savvy people to update things is another challenge in itself um, um yeah that's well I, i'm guilty like myself so my own my, my own systems because you get the problem is you get busy right and you know we, we're, we're all busy so if you're not if you're not on top of it and right not everyone is an expert in tls security and thinking about hey tls 1.3 is out should i be using that you know to transport data over my 
you know, HTTP connection, you know, no one's thinking about that, right? Um, and so um, that, that became a challenge. So my design approach, especially with this product is think about when I write code, treat that device as if it's, you know, read only memory, like try to do the due diligence in our testing, in our firmware development, that we just aren't gonna say, well, we'll ship it out and update the firmware later. Think about how do we get this thing rock solid so you know, we're not updating firmware for new changes every month? And how can we engineer the system to, to you know, to, um, it's kind of like when you send a, a probe out in space, like they certainly can do firmware, but it's not something you're like, hey, let's just try this today. Like let's, um, you know, you know, let's apply a little bit of discipline. So, so it's the exact opposite of the video game industry. Uh, yeah, it's well, the video game industry used to be like that. You right, you burnt your EPROMs for your Atari, and that was it. And the, yeah, game over. Right, yeah, but now you just ship it when it's sixty percent done, and yeah. So, it, I, I think you know because I, I mentioned I grew up like on the NES and Super NES, where yeah, you you they they had a mask rock, right? They had the burn a billion of those things so it, you had to have something shippable um and so growing up like that was the norm you go to the local kb toys you buy super mario brothers 2 you pop it in it's gonna work it boots up um i had a period in life where i was super in the video games it turned out all the other stuff in life turned out to be as enjoyable as a video game and i knew if i played the latest you know xbox or playstation i would get you know way too addicted but if a couple of years ago we said you know uh my, my daughter really wanted to play this game overwatch so i said we'll buy this ps4 and they had a they're having a sale on a star wars game I'm like yeah i want to play the i want to be an x-wing so i got really excited we got this playstation 4 what's the first thing you put the disc in i want to play the damn game all right electronic arts we need to download an eight gig update <laughs> that comes down three hours later it's it's installed Oh, you need an EA account. Oh, we now have to repatch. The, like it was, I swear to God, six hours later, and I just wanted to be, I, I wanted to blow up the Death Star. Like I really wanted that. <laughs> uh, then it was not two days later. Hey, we have a patch XYZ for the game to, you know, make it playable. So it's, yeah, it, it's definitely a different world. You, you know, <laughs> as, a, as a side tangent, I saw this uh, last December and I never really thought about it because I've never had to think about it. But uh, I saw it on my social media somewhere. It was like, if you bought a, a, a video game console for your kids or, or whatever, um, don't just give it to them fresh on Christmas Day. Open it up, download all the crap, make sure it's ready to play such that you give it to them and it's ready to go. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's probably good advice because uh, my my guilty pleasure lately is like when I, you know, I just I, I need some time off to like like I do a lot of woodworking and that's like my time to think. But my other guilty pleasure is yeah, your uh, table saw doesn't need an update, does it? Uh, it the nice if thing if it was from EA, it would have loot boxes. Yeah. <laughs> The good thing about the table saw, it's me that table saw and keeping my fingers. Like that's the, <laughs> that's all that matters is uh, those three things, but. It can un-upgrade you. Uh, yes. I guess it's called downgrade. Uh, yeah. It can remove digits very fast. Um, but so yeah, my other guilty pleasure is I bought a copy of uh, Red Dead Redemption 2 um, a few months ago, just because I, I needed to like disconnect. And you know, once again, I went to the store, I kind of bought like a used copy at a local use game store and i thought i'm gonna go home and it's a friday evening get some pizza and play and it was no it was probably two hours later that i was ready for bed like i just, <laughs> <laughs> I just so, 
So yeah. So what, what's this last product in here that looks like renders at the very bottom here? Oh, um, yeah. So that's kind of like, uh, so So we talked about like Brew as a system. So Brew itself right now, and, um, you know, I should back up a little bit. So we were, so last in 2019, um, hardly it's been a year. So we went out to, there's, there's this conference, the Craft Brewers Conference. It was in Denver last year. It is one hell of a conference. I mean, 15,000 people drinking beer, talking craft brew equipment. Um, it's a giant party, it's awesome. We were at a point where we, we did all this engineering. We were now trying to, you know, go out, talk to people and try to sell this monitoring system um, and, and get some feedback. And, and, and that's where we, we were starting to get into the cellular and, you know, the whole system as a whole to kind of deliver um, the entire service. Um, but it's really focused on the monitor aspect. I mean, you hook these sensors up, you see what's going on. Um, while we're doing this, we, we, we're running pilots, um, you know, you know, across Pennsylvania, just gathering data, seeing what's of, you know, of, of value. Um, then right as we're about to hit, you know, you know, general release and really push it out there, you know, the world kind of shut down with COVID-19, breweries everywhere, the tap rooms are closed. Um, and we were trying to use it as some time to kind of reflect of like, how can we help the industry? Um, and how can we look at all the data we collected about what problems people are having? And, you know, you know, one of those things is the monitoring the fermentation is, is very helpful. Um, we do get quite a bit of requests saying, well, you can tell me what the temperature is remotely. Can you control the temperature? Can you, can, can, can I, can I replace my control system? because I've literally seen every type of temperature controller now from the most complicated, you know, Allen Bradley type uh, control system to the thing that is hacked together um, in probably the most crude way. You, you see a wide variety of it, but it's, it, it's a dude in a corner just flipping a switch up and down. Um, <laughs> not only that, we actually went into a brewery, the remote monitoring system was, um, they, they had their little uh, PID controller for their temp with a little seven second display. He bought a GoPro and like pointed at it and rigged it up so he could like look at a webcam to look at the PID controller. You think that might be crazy. I have seen setups like that in oil and gas field. No, I, I get it. Like it's, it's <laughs> you got to do what you got to do. So no, it's perfect because it's a, it's an air gap. Oh, it is. I, <laughs> it's isolated. <laughs> so you can't, you can't hack of a, 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 the of the video stream yeah exactly it was, <laughs> um no but we, we we were just talking around and um you know we're certainly not if someone has a, a working control system right like everyone needs temperature control well, i say most people require temperature control but is it something we could add on as a companion product or maybe have a local readout so it's if you don't want it in the cloud you want it on the local device um in thinking about how to Maybe instead of selling a system where you have eight sensors, we have like a little cellular collector box is where, you know, the price of the cellular and the modems, um, it makes sense just to put it in everything uh, as a single node is if someone just wanted to try out one, right? We could, you know, uh, and maybe they want a temperature control offer a device that kind of mounts maybe to your, you know, the blow off valve on one of these fermenters. We plug in the fermentation sensor, you get the precision temperature, does all that, talks to the back end so you can uh, 
get your data remotely, but also it can hook up to a solenoid to control a glycol. Um, and kind of right there locally be a, a solution because, you know, it, one, one of the things we saw that was common, especially in um, as the, the bigger the breweries went, um, especially as they're planning it, they're like, well, we're going to buy, we're going to go to Omega, we're going to buy some RTDs, um, you know, put them in a thermal well. We're going to run wires 200 feet back to where the controller's at. And then we're going to run another set of wires 200 feet back to turn the solenoid off and on. And they said, that's just a lot of wire. And when, when we looked at it, I said, you know what, if we kind of had, we could have everything like right there just to make life easier to hook up. So um, we, we had, a, a, you know, a few customers that were really asking about it, that, that want to be pilots to kind of make it part of the, the, the product line to kind of offer another entry point. Um, and so what you're looking there is actually, that is actually a real screen that I had on a dev board that I gave to Nick. Um, he kind of designed an enclosure that, you know, there's a nice little mount that you really can't see, but it, it would fit on the blow off valve. It kind of has like a big silver knob. Think of like a nest. It, it kind of have like a sexy little. I was interface. just about to say this looks so nesty but it also looks like a baby monitor which is still kind of <laughs> it's like applicable to beer yeah. brewing <laughs> so um so where we're at so uh it, it, and this is where we actually have um you know i built some we we literally the first controller is running on dev boards in the back room and i actually used um which i've actually originally didn't think um i would like it but i i found some boards that used uh like Adafruit is really uh, using a circuit Python, um, this, this embedded Python. So I just needed to make a prototype. I bought some of these things and probably a day, I had everything hooked up and it was actually an interesting experience. I, from a prototyping aspect, it was really really fun. Um, but we, we built this thing, I built another prototype that had, we, we figured out the screen we wanted that was nice and bright that you could be you know, 30, 40 feet away from your, um, your, your fermentation vessel, your bright tank. Um, see it with big letters, you know, it's, it's a pretty high, you know, high pixel density screen. So it looks nice. It kind of has all that nice features, we, you know, uh, to it, but it also reads the fermentation sensor has outputs to control, um, you know, a solenoid, uh, to control the valves as well as be able to kind of connect if you want that. So we can have like a couple different entry points for, for people who want, um, Maybe they just want a standalone temperature controller and monitor the yeast productivity right there. Maybe they don't want a remote SG curve. So, so we'd have you know something else in the product line, and uh, and that's what I was mentioning. Actually, the first Rev A board that's going to fit in the enclosure is that Macrofab as of like yesterday at you know 3:45 Eastern. Um, that's really tying all the prototypes together, so we can get some boxes built and kind of get out in the world. So, so yeah, that so that's what that thing is. Um, well, cool, Eli. Um, does anyone have anything else? <laughs> <laughs> Any more comments about brewing? I, I actually I have one. This is what I've been thinking because we've been talking about acoustics, yeah, and things growing, and it's there's research in in playing music for plants. Have you all, have you tried? your piezo to send music into the yeast um L lullabies from the nest controller um 
we have not. Um, now, our system generates, uh, you know, a fairly narrowband signal around uh, two megahertz. So it's a bit maybe above human hearing. Uh, I'm not really sure if the yeast like it or not. Um, you know, uh, yeah, you know, what's, have, what's the vibratory resonance of a yeast cell? And uh, are you actually destroying yeast? Uh, <laughs> yeah, actually, uh, no, that's actually a good point. Um, one of the things to really exploit the to, to measure the activity of the yeast is, you know, you can imagine these little bubbles uh, going up in the tank. Well, those bubbles have a they have a radius, right? Um, is that if you pick your, you know, the wavelength, everything is kind of with respect to the wavelength, you know, measured in, we can measure it in millimeters or whatever, as compared to that bubble. So, so in acoustics, a lot of times you don't, you don't think of dimensions in terms of units. You think about how many wavelengths across is this, is this feature. Well, if it's really, really long, if that wave is like really long compared to the bubble, it doesn't interact with the bubble at all. It just, it's like, it's not even there. It's like, imagine a huge wave in the ocean in a tiny little boat in the middle, like that boat isn't doing anything. Um, if you make the wave too small, you have the opposite problem. The beam is way too focused and you get way too much scattering, meaning it's gonna reflect off. But if you pick something that's about the order of magnitude, about the same size, you get an effect where you get most of the wave that comes through and, and you get scattering and you can measure both. Uh, and so that's where the, some of the acoustic design kind of came in of understanding that. Uh, this wave is much bigger than I think the yeast cells, but they're, they're on the order of magnitude of the bubbles. And that was kind of some of the, you know, you know, the magic. So the bubbles probably don't like it. Um, they probably don't like it. Although I think in the end they win because there's a lot of them. <laughs> I kind of love it just because the look of this sensor thing, it just looks like a steel tube with a weird extra steel tube at the end of it. And, and it's one of those things where it's like, this is doing something and there's some, you know, voodoo and smoke and yeah, mirrors behind it, you know? Yeah. And out the other end is this uh, connector. And, um, you know, that would be the other thing too, if anyone's interested, you know, one thing along the way we found, especially in the food and beverage Connectors are actually probably the biggest, I know it's circuit board design. I, I absolutely despise dealing with connectors because <laughs> it's just, you can spend a long time burning up, figuring out what is the connector that's going to last. And so we, we use, um, it's called an M12 connector. Um, so because it's a 12 millimeter, um, you know, threaded connection used quite a bit in the food and beverage industry, but, um, some of the brewers are are probably rougher than others on hardware and we found out the connector is kind of a point where that thing it better be a threaded in kind of thing because we've had people sit on the sensors like everything that you can think could happen has happened and so well your beef with connectors you have found your people here on this podcast that's a long running thing on this podcast yeah uh it's it's a hard problem because i I think you know how like computer science, like the classic problem is the off by one error. That's like the thing that will get you in the butt. So I, I think is in the in the electro, electrical engineering world is it's like which way is the diode, where's pin one, and is it flipped because you you rotated the connector upside down for a flex? It's like where the where the frick is pin one? Like <laughs> or or you didn't see on the data sheet the uh, the drawing says uh, view from bottom side or some, oh, something yeah, like, like and in a small little bullet point. <laughs> 
or or it's just not or there's no you know that's the other thing we've noticed is like my colleague nick we're, we're kind of at each other because like UEEs and your your documentation you don't follow the uh, asme you know standard uh way for um dimensioning apart which it is it's like a two different worlds about you can tell who's a mechanical engineer that dimensioned apart and who's a pcb engineer and how they dimensioned apart because the world is how you use it in the tool is completely different. Um, but I certainly feel for you. <laughs> well, uh, so if people want to uh, learn a little bit more about uh, T zero brew, where could they go find about about it? Well, if you go to, first of all, if you go to T zero brew.com, um, you can learn about it. Actually, if you're a brewery, we, because of the, the COVID-19 uh, pandemic, we actually released a, a free version of the software, um, just the dashboard. And, and, and what it is, it gives you the dashboard where you just enter manual measurements. It was just something of like, hey, it, it's a tool to help keep your teams on board. Um, it's simple. You can kind of manually put in your measurement, get some graphs, um, and just try to provide a little bit of value. Um, you know, and, it, and it's there. And we're certainly love to hear any feedback of how to make it better because you know, those guys are out there every day doing the work. So, um, and uh, certainly, uh, yeah, you can reach out to me on Twitter, you know, EMH203. Um, if you want to check out the Twitter feed, I have a lot of these pictures of this stuff on there. Uh, a lot of my engineering projects, you know, just end up as Twitter posts. Feel free to reach out. I, I think at the end of, uh, of all this COVID stuff, we're going to need a lot of beer. So we're, we're needing heroes like you. Uh, you, you know, I'm, we need a lot of beer right yeah. now. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm hoping that, like, and, 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 and we, we make the argument, you know, what, like, beer production has been around for a while. It'll continue being for, it's, you know, um, while there's always ebbs and flows, ups and down, you know, you're not going to stop people from drinking beer and good beer and good craft beer. So um, we just want to try to help and be part of the, you know, ecosystem and um, try to, help merge our expertise with the expertise of the brewers to make good product. Well, fantastic. So thank you so much, Eli, for coming on to our podcast. All right, great. Thank you. I enjoyed it. You want to sign us out? This was the Macrofab Engineering Podcast. I was your guest, Eli Hughes. And we were your hosts, Parker Yeoman. And Stephen Craig. Later, everyone. Take it easy. <laughs>